0: This is the Notable Speeches Podcast, and we appreciate your listening. This week, a recent address by the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, about prosecutorial accountability under the U.S. Constitution. He said that the power to prosecute an individual or a corporation must be handled with restraint and discretion, lest it inflict more harm than it prevents. He also decried the growing tendency to use investigations and charges as a means of trying to win political disputes. Mr. Barr presented this address during a Constitution Day event this month sponsored by Hillsdale College. Bill Barr is in his second stint as the U.S. Attorney General, having held that same post in the administration of President George H.W. Bush. He holds a degree in Chinese studies from New York's Columbia University and a law degree from the George Washington University School of Law. Here is Attorney General William Barr speaking September 16th, 2020 at Hillsdale College's Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. I'm
1: very pleased to be able to speak to you uh, at this Hillsdale College celebration of our magnificent Constitution. Sadly, many colleges these days don't even teach the Constitution, much less celebrate it. And I appreciate your observance and all you do uh, for civic education, an education period in this country. Now, when many people think of the virtues of our Constitution, they first mention the Bill of Rights, of course. That's the talking point of the Constitution. There's a Bill of Rights, you have rights. And I guess that makes sense. The great guarantees of the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, especially the right to keep and bear arms, just to name a few, are critical safeguards to our liberty. But as President Reagan used to remind people, the Soviet Union had a Constitution and even included some of these lofty sounding rights. Ultimately, however, those promises are just empty words because there was no rule of law in that society to enforce them. The rule of law is the linchpin of American freedom and the critical guarantee of the rule of law comes from the Constitution's structure of separation of powers. Now, there are many elements of the rule of law, and there are many many safeguards built into our great Constitution, but tonight I want to talk about the separation of powers. The framers recognize that by dividing the legislative, executive, and judicial powers, each significant, but each limited, they would minimize the risk of any form of tyranny. That is the real genius of the Constitution, and it ultimately is more important to securing liberty than the Bill of Rights. After all, the Bill of Rights is a set of amendments to the original Constitution, and I know you all know that the framers did not think it was needed. Uh, They didn't need to include into the Constitution an express enumeration of rights. Today I want to talk about the power that the Constitution allocates to the executive branch, particularly in the area of criminal justice. The Supreme Court has correctly held that under Article II of the Constitution, the executive has virtually unchecked discretion to decide whether to prosecute individuals for suspected crimes. We all know that as the executive vested with the responsibility for seeing that the laws are faithfully executed, the power to execute and enforce law is an executive function altogether. And that means discretion is vested in the executive to determine when to exercise the prosecutorial power. The only significant limitation on that discretion comes from other provisions of the Constitution. For example, the United States Attorney could not decide to prosecute only people of a particular race or a particular religion. But aside from that limitation, which thankfully uh, remains only a hypothetical in our country, the executive has broad discretion to decide whether to bring criminal prosecutions in particular cases. The key question then is how the executive should exercise its prosecutorial discretion. Eighty years ago this spring, one of my predecessors in this job, then Attorney General Robert Jackson, gave a famous speech to the Conference of United States Attorneys in which he described the proper role and qualities of federal prosecutors. Justice Jackson was one of only a handful, I think three maybe, Attorneys General who who ultimately ended up as a justice on the Supreme Court. Much has changed in the eight decades since Justice Jackson's remarks. But he was a man of uncommon wisdom and it is appropriate to consider his views today and and how they uh, apply in our modern era. Federal prosecutors possess tremendous power, power that is necessary to enforce our laws and punish wrongdoing, but power that like all power, any other power, carries inherent potential for abuse. Justice Jackson recognized this, and as he put it, the prosecutor has more control over the life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. Prosecutors have the power to investigate people, to interview their friends, and they can do so on the basis of mere suspicion of wrongdoing. People facing federal investigations incur ruinous legal costs, and often see their lives reduced to rubble before a charge is even filed. Justice Jackson was not exaggerating when he said, while the prosecutor at his best is one of the most beneficent forces in our society, when he acts from malice or other base motives, he is one of the worst. Think about the power of a prosecutor. Doesn't he have to answer to anything outside the office of the prosecutor, and he can destroy people's lives just by bringing an investigation, destroy their reputation, destroy their livelihood in today's world. And it's not just individuals, think of the corporations. Anderson, the accounting firm, thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs done away within an instant because of a prosecutorial decision. And a decision that was largely discretionary because individuals are initially responsible for the crime. And the question of whether or not you're going to impute that to the corporation and take down the corporation as well is largely a discretionary call by prosecutors. And in today's world, going after a corporation or a white collar uh, defendant is like shooting fish in a barrel. There is no contest. You threaten a company with criminal liability, and all the collateral effects that that has, no corporation is going to go to trial and fight that, and the prosecutors know that. It's just a question of how much the check is going to be. And that's all within the control of a prosecutor. The power as Justice Jackson said, to strike at citizens, not with just the individual strength, but with all the force of the government itself. And that has to be carefully calibrated and carefully supervised. Because left unchecked, it has the power to inflict far more harm than it prevents. The most basic check on prosecutorial power is political accountability. It is counterintuitive to say that, as we rightly strive to maintain an apolitical system of criminal justice, but political accountability, politics, is what ultimately ensures our system does its work fairly and with proper recognition of the many interests and values at stake. Government power completely divorced from political accountability is tyranny. Now, Justice Jackson understood this, and as he explained, presidential appointment and Senate confirmation of the United States attorneys and the senior Department of Justice officials is what legitimizes their exercises of sovereign power. You are required to win an expression of confidence in your character, by both the legislative and the executive branches of the government before assuming the responsibilities of a federal prosecutor. Yet in the decades since Justice Jackson's remarks, it's become commonplace to argue that prosecutorial decisions are legitimate only when they are made by the lowest level line prosecutors, the career prosecutors, handling any given case. Ironically, some of those same critics see no problem in campaigning for highly political elected district attorneys to remake state and local prosecutorial offices in their preferred progressive image, which often involves overriding the considered judgment of the career prosecutors and police officers. But aside from that hypocrisy, the notion that line prosecutors should make the final decisions within the Department of Justice is completely wrong and it is antithetical to the basic values that undergird our entire system. The Justice Department is not a praetorian guard that watches over a society impervious to the ebbs and flows of politics. It is an agency within the executive branch of a democratic republic, a form of government where the power of the state is ultimately reposed in the people, acting through their elected president and their elected representatives. The men and women who have ultimate authority in the Justice Department are thus the ones on whom our elected officials have conferred that responsibility, prior presidential appointment and Senate confirmation. That blessing by the two political branches of government gives these officials democratic legitimacy that career officials do not possess. The same process that produces these officials also holds them accountable. The elected president can fire senior Department of Justice officials at will, and the elected Congress can summon them to explain their decisions to the people's representatives and to the public. And because these officials have the imprimatur of both the president and Congress, they also have the stature to resist these political pressures when necessary, and they can take the heat for what the Department of Justice does or doesn't do. Line prosecutors, by contrast, are generally part of the permanent bureaucracy. They do not have the political legitimacy to be the public face for tough decisions, and they lack the political buy-in necessary to publicly defend those decisions. Nor can the public and its representatives hold civil servants accountable in the same way as appointed officials. Indeed, the public's only tool to hold the government accountable is an election and the bureaucracy is neither elected nor easily replaced by those who are. Moreover, because these officials are installed by the democratic process, that is the appointees, they are the most equipped to make the judgment calls concerning how we should wield our prosecutorial power. As Justice Scalia observed and perhaps his most admired judicial opinion, his dissent in Morrison versus Olson, almost all investigative and prosecutorial decisions, including the ultimate decision whether after a technical violation of the law has been found, prosecution is warranted, involve the balancing of innumerable legal and practical considerations. And those considerations do not uh, do need to be balanced. In each and every case, as Justice Scalia also pointed out, it is nice to say "Fiat justitia ruat caelum," let justice be done, though the, the heavens may fall. But it doesn't comport with reality. It would do far more harm than good to abandon all perspective and proportion in an attempt to ensure that every technical violation of criminal law by every person is tracked down, investigated, and prosecuted to the nth degree. Our system works best when leavened by judgment, discretion, proportionality, and consideration of alternative sanctions. All the things that supervisors provide. Cases must be supervised by someone who does not have a narrow focus But who is broad gauged and pursuing a general agenda. And that person need not be a prosecutor, but someone who can balance the importance of vigorous prosecution with other competing values. In short, the Attorney General, senior DOJ officials, and U.S. attorneys are indeed political, but they are political in a good and necessary sense. Indeed, aside from the importance of not fully decoupling law enforcement from the constraining and moderating forces of politics, devolving all authority down to the most junior officials does not even make sense as a matter of basic management. Name one successful organization or institution where the lowest level employees' decisions are deemed sacrosanct. They aren't, there aren't any. Letting the most junior members set the agenda might be a good philosophy for a Montessori preschool, but it is no way to run a federal agency. Good leaders at the Department of Justice, as any organization, need to trust and support their subordinates, but that does not mean blindly deferring to whatever those subordinates want to do. One of the more annoying things that I hear and face and, you know, this has been going on for decades, this this, uh, strange idea that uh, political officials interfere in investigations or in cases. And I'm saying, what do you mean by interfere? Under the law, all prosecutorial power is vested in the attorney general. And these people are Agents of the Attorney General. And as I say to FBI agents, whose agent do you think you are? Now I don't say this in a pompous way, but that is the chain of authority and legitimacy in the Department of Justice. And I say, well, what exactly am I interfering with? And when you boil it right down, it's the will of the most junior member of the organization who has some idea that he wants to do something. And what makes that sacrosanct? What makes the judgment of the next layer up or the next layer up or the next layer up? Each layer, by the way, fanning out and having broader and broader experience, much more experience and a broader portfolio and a broader perspective. What makes the lying attorney who's handling a particular case, their judgment so sacrosanct? The idea is, I guess, well, they're not political, and therefore their judgments won't be political. But from many, my experience in the department, in two different eras, (laughs) career employees are not apolitical, necessarily. Some are. Some are very political and can check their politics at the door, and others can't, and and, and, and can be partisan. They're not apolitical, necessarily. They're human beings like everybody else, and they're very usually less experienced individuals than their supervisors. So this is what presidents, the Congress, and the public expect. When something goes wrong in the Department of Justice, the buck has to stop somewhere, and that's at the top. The statute I referenced was 28 U.S.C. Section 509, which couldn't be plainer. All functions of other offices of the Department of Justice and all functions of agencies and employees of the Department of Justice are vested in the Attorney General. And because the Attorney General is ultimately politically accountable for every decision that the Department makes, I and my predecessors have had an obligation to ensure that we make the correct decision. The Attorney General, the Assistant Attorneys General, the U.S. Attorneys are not figureheads. We're supervisors. Our job is to supervise, and anything less is an abdication. Active engagement in our cases by senior officials is also essential to the rule of law. The essence of the rule of law is that whatever rule you apply in one case must be the same rule you would apply in a similar case. Treating each person equally before the law includes how the department enforces the law. We should not prosecute someone for wire fraud in Manhattan using a legal theory we would not equally pursue in Madison or in Montgomery, or allow prosecutors in one division to bring charges using a theory that a group of prosecutors in another division down the hall would not deploy against someone who's engaged in indistinguishable conduct. We must strive for consistency, and that is yet another reason why centralized senior leadership exists, to harmonize the disparate views of our many prosecutors in a consistent policy for the department. I was being interviewed by a member of the press. It was a radio interview, uh, and I got one of these questions like, uh, well, you know, why are you, you know, interfering in some case over here or some case over there? And I said, well, why do you think we have one attorney general? I said we have ninety-three districts, fifty states, ninety-three districts. Why don't you think each U.S. attorney should be a law unto themselves? Why do you think we have one attorney general for uniformity of law, for having consistency in the application of law, for having someone who has the entire perspective of the playing field. And the cameramen were all nodding their head. This made sense, this made sense. (laughs) Jackson said, we must proceed in all districts with that uniformity of policy, which is necessary to the prestige of federal law. But I think there's more involved than prestige. Uniformity is uh, what protects us. At the end of the day, Our system is really the crystallization of the golden rule in a political system. And that's ultimately what protects us, which is I'm not willing to do to somebody else what I'm not willing to have done to me. That is ultimately the foundation of our freedom, okay? We see that in the legislative branch. Think about it constitutionally here since I'm talking about the Constitution tonight. The legislature in the United States, our national federal legislature, can't make one law that applies to New York and another to California. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Think about it. Because then you could have little factions in the country, you know, buying favor and building a majority to adopt rules that don't apply to everyone the same. But it's also because you can't have, you know, the rest of the country say, okay, we're gonna go to war, and by the way, the draft law only applies to New York, okay? The Constitution requires uniformity across the nation. So that's legislative, when you make a rule legislatively, it has to apply to everybody. But it also applies in the enforcement of law. The same uniformity is required because that is the ultimate guarantor of freedom. All the supervision in the world won't be enough, though, without a strong culture across the Department of Fairness and Commitment to even-handed justice. So that's what Justice Jackson described as the spirit of fair play and decency that should animate the federal prosecutor. Sounds quaint today, doesn't it? In his memorable turn of phrase, even when the government technically loses its case, it has really won if justice has been done. We want our prosecutors to be aggressive and tenacious in their pursuit of justice, but we also want to ensure that justice is ultimately administered dispassionately. So one thing I'll say is that the job of the prosecutor is to try the case and attempt to achieve a conviction of guilt. But that's when the job of the prosecutor is over. In some cases, we may express our views as to what the sentence should be, but the sentencing belongs to the judge, the judicial function. And after the prosecutor wins the case, we like that competitiveness, we like that spirit and aggressiveness, but Once the case is won, passions must cool. And justice in the sentencing phase has to be fair. And that's why the sentence is given by the neutral judge. Now, we're all human. And like any person, a prosecutor can become overly invested in a particular goal. Prosecutors who devote months and years of their lives to investigating a particular target may become deeply invested in their case and assured of the rightness of their cause. When a prosecution becomes my prosecution, particularly if the investigation is highly public or has been acrimonious or if the prosecutor is confident early on that the target has committed a serious crime, there's always a temptation— to will a prosecution, a charge, into existence, even when the facts, the law, or the fair-handed administration of justice do not support bringing the charge. This risk is inevitable and cannot be avoided simply by hiring as prosecutors only moral people with righteous motivations. I am reminded of a passage by C.S. Lewis It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. (laughs) The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, I don't know, but at the same time, likelier to make hell on earth. There's yet another reason for having layers of supervision. Individual prosecutors can sometimes become headhunters. It's all too often. They're consumed with taking down their target. Subjecting their decisions to review by detached supervisors ensure the involvement of dispassionate decision makers. This was, of course, the central problem with the independent counsel statute that Justice Scalia criticized in Morrison versus Olson. Creating an unaccountable headhunter was not some unfortunate byproduct of that statute. It was the stated purpose of the statute. That was what Justice Scalia meant by his famous line, this wolf comes as a wolf. As he went on to explain, quote, how frightening it must be to have your own independent counsel and staff appointed with nothing else to do but to investigate you until investigation is no longer worthwhile. With whether it is worthwhile, not depending upon what such judgments usually hinge on, competing responsibilities. And to have that counsel and staff decide with no basis for comparison whether what you have done is bad enough, willful enough, and provable enough to warrant an indictment. How admirable the constitutional system that provides the means to avoid such a distortion, and how unfortunate the judicial decision that has permitted it. Now, I said headhunters, and that's because, as Jackson said, if the prosecutor is obliged to choose his cases, it follows that he can choose his defendants. Therein is the most dangerous power of the prosecutor, that he will pick people that he thinks he should get, rather than pick the cases that need to be prosecuted. Any erosion in prosecutorial detachment is extraordinarily perilous, for, as he said, it is in this realm in which the prosecutor picks some person whom he dislikes or desires to embarrass or selects some group of unpopular persons and then looks for an offense that the greatest danger of abuse of prosecuting power lies. It is here that law enforcement becomes personal and the real crime becomes that of being unpopular with the predominant or governing group, being attached to the wrong political views or being personally obnoxious to or in any way to the prosecutor himself. And that's what we frequently say. I'd like to be able to stand here and say we don't see headhunting in the Department of Justice and that would not be truthful. I see it every day. And it's a temptation that the power of prosecution is a heady power. And it is a temptation sometimes to go after people rather than crimes. And we see that every night. You know this country is in serious problems. With all the real problems we face in international affairs and domestically, when most of our news coverage, or what passes for news coverage, are you know, bloviating talking heads, discussing whether some action in Washington, some action taken by an official, constitutes some esoteric crime. And you know, looking through statute books to see, could we, could we you know, say that this is a crime? Because disagreement no longer is enough political disagreement and political debate. Now you have to call your adversary a criminal, and instead of beating them politically, you try to put them in jail. So we're becoming sort of like an Eastern European country where if you're you're not in power, you're in jail or you're a member of the press. (laughs) Now, one of the areas that I think there's a problem is the way we interpret statutes these days, and we have to recalibrate that if we're ever gonna restore the rule of law. Clarity in the law is indispensable to the rule of law. And if a law is malleable, then it can be applied differently in different cases. And that is the breakdown of law. Now, one of the most irritating developments over the last 50, 60 years is equity driving law out of the marketplace. If you go and read Supreme Court decisions, and this has been, as I say, going on for decades, instead of articulating a law, a rule, they say it's the totality of circumstance. And it's equity, what if, you know, what was the conscience of the, of the fifth vote on the Supreme Court or, and you know, they can't articulate the rule, but it's that very discipline of being to, able to universalize the principle that you're applying in a case that ensures the rule of law and ensures that, and that the person is being treated fairly and it is that process of universalizing it that says, I'm only going to apply to this person what I'm willing to do to every other similarly situated person, and be able to articulate the rule. And we've completely lost that in our law. And that's why lawyers are so infuriating beyond their normal uh, ir- you know, irritating nature, which is they can't tell the client what the law is. You know, well, it could go this way, it could go that way. And uh, that's because their law has broken down, and it's broken down because the justices don't feel they have to go through that discipline anymore. The nature of judicial power is being debased. Equity has its uses and its place, but it can't be constitutional law. And these are some of the points that are similar to made by uh, Justice Scalia in his article about the rule of law being the law of rules. Now, in recent years, the Department of Justice has sometimes acted like a trade association for prosecutors. More like that than than the administrator of a fair system of justice based on clear and sensible rules. In case after case, we've advanced and defended hyper-aggressive extensions of the criminal law. This is wrong, and we have to stop doing it. We should want a fair system with clear rules that people can understand. It does not serve the ends of justice to advocate for fuzzy and manipulable criminal prohibitions and maximize the options of the prosecutors. Preventing that sort of pro-prosecutor uncertainty is what the ancient rule of lenity is all about. I'm sure you know what that is, which is if there's... Vagueness in, in a law, you interpret it in the most lenient way possible from the standpoint of the defendant. And that rule should likewise inform what we do at the Department of Justice when we think about the substance of the criminal law. Advocating for clear and defined prohibitions will sometimes mean that we cannot bring charges against someone whom we believed is engaged in bad conduct. But that is what it means to be a government of laws and not men. We cannot let our desire to get bad people turn into the functional equivalent of the mad emperor Caligula who inscribed criminal laws in tiny script atop a tall pillar where no one could read it. To be clear, what I'm describing is not the Al Capone situation, where you have someone who has committed multiple crimes, and you decide to prosecute that person for only the clearest violation that carries a sufficient penalty. I am talking about taking vague statutory language and then applying it to a criminal target in a novel way that is, at minimum, hardly clear uh, from the statutory text. This is inherently unfair because criminal prosecutions are backward-looking we charge people with crimes based on past conduct. If it was unknown or or unclear that the conduct was illegal when the person engaged in it, that raises real questions about whether it is fair to prosecute the person criminally for it. Examples of the department defending these sorts of extreme positions are unfortunately numerous, as are the rejections of those arguments by the Supreme Court. These include arguments as varied as the department's insisting, That a Philadelphia woman violated the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act, implementing the Convention on the Prohibition of the Development, Production, Stockpiling, and Use of Chemical Weapons. She did this by putting chemicals on her neighbor's doorknob as part of an acrimonious love triangle involving the woman's husband unanimously rejected that argument in Bond versus United States, or they argued that a fisherman violated the anti-shredding provisions of the Sarbanes-Oxley law when he threw undersized grouper over the side of his boat, which the Supreme Court rejected in Yates versus the United States, or more recently, arguing that aides to the governor of New Jersey fraudulently, quote, obtained property from the government when they realigned the lanes on the George Washington Bridge to create a traffic jam, which the Supreme Court unanimously rejected in Kelly versus the United States. There are many other examples. In fact, you know, it's interesting when people say that the Trump administration is lawless, and I usually see you know, scratching my head saying, you know, we, we litigate all our stuff, we win a lot of it, we go through the process, you know, what, what exactly is lawless about it? The fact is that the Obama administration had the worst record in the Supreme Court of any recent administration, losing cases. And, our, and we, you know, our administration so far has been doing above average in terms of uh, winning in the Supreme Court. Anyway, taking a capacious approach to criminal law is not only unfair to the criminal and, and bad for the department, it's corrosive of our political system. If criminal statutes are endlessly manipulable, then everything becomes a potential crime. This criminalization of politics is not healthy. The criminal law is supposed to be reserved for the most egregious misconduct Conduct so bad that our society has decided it requires serious punishment up to and including being locked away. These tools are not built to resolve political disputes and it would be a bad development for us to go the way of these third world countries where political parties routinely prosecute their opponents for various ill-defined crimes against the state. This is not the stuff of a mature democracy. We abet this culture of criminalization when we are not disciplined about what charges we will bring, what legal theories we will adopt. Rather than root out true crimes while leaving ethically dubious conduct to the voters, our prosecutors have all too often inserted themselves into the political process based on the flimsiest of legal theories. We have seen this time and time again with prosecutors bringing ill-conceived charges against prominent political figures or launching debilitating investigations that thrust the Department of Justice into the middle of the political process and preempt the ability of the people to decide. This criminalization of politics will only worsen until we change the culture of concocting new legal theories to criminalize all manner of questionable conduct. Smart, ambitious lawyers have sought to amass glory by prosecuting prominent public figures since the Roman Republic. It is utterly unsurprising that prosecutors continue to do so today, to the extent the Justice Department leaders will permit it. And as long as I'm Attorney General, we're not going to permit it. Our In short, it is important for prosecutors at the Department of Justice to understand that their mission, above all others, is to do justice. And that means following the letter of the law and the spirit of fairness. Sometimes that will mean investing months or years in an investigation and then concluding it is without criminal charges. Our job is to be just as dogged in preventing injustice as we are in pursuing wrongdoing. On this score, as in many, Justice Jackson said it best, and I'll close with his words, the qualities of a good prosecutor are as elusive and as impossible to define as those which mark a gentleman, and those who need to be told would not understand it anyway. A sensitiveness to fair play and sportsmanship is perhaps the best protection against the abuse of power. And the citizen's safety lies in the prosecutor who tempers zeal with human kindness, who seeks truth and not victims, who serves the law and not factional purposes, and who, above all, approaches his task with humility. Thank you.
0: U.S. Attorney General William Barr at a mid-September event held on Constitution Day and sponsored by Hillsdale College. We welcome your comments and suggestions about the Notable Speeches podcast. Send us an email, feedback at notablespeeches.com. Of course, you'll get new episodes automatically if you subscribe using the podcast app you prefer. Or if you'd rather listen via the web, you can do that at notablespeeches.com. For a heads up on newly released episodes, follow us on Twitter or Parlay at Notable Speeches. I'm Joseph Slife. Thanks for listening.